Hi, I'm Andrew and I'm here at the Global Academy in Hayes on the site of EMI's old vinyl factory. This factory would have once produced over 55,000 vinyl records a day. EMI was home to Beatlemania in the 60s and was the starting point for some of the world's most famous bands and singers including Pink Floyd and the Beatles. It was also home to technology that would soon shape our world from medical revolutions to keeping our country safe from the threat of invasion. This is the story of EMI. Why has it got to be so loud, so amplified? Well, I don't guess it has to be, but I mean, that's the way we like it. And uh, we didn't grow up with a string quartet, and I guess that could be one of the reasons why it is loud. And it doesn't sound terribly loud to us. After the noble success of the Beatles, EMI were looking for their next big hit to get them to number one. To do this, their search went deeper, and where better than the underground psychedelic scene of London? The underground scene in London during the early 60s is one of love, sex and drugs. And it was definitely a surprise to see a group of young keen guitarists, Roger Barrett, Roger Waters and David Gilmore, who were educated in Cambridge, express themselves by joining the underground scene. They were well-spoken, had degrees, and they fitted the traditional description of what EMI were after. We were the people who had our fingers on the pulse of the nation, as far as EMI was concerned. So they were very nice to us because they were these young guys who, furthermore, were not spivs from the East End. We weren't called blimey, you know, I've got a great deal for you boys. You know, we were nice chaps from public school, and in my case, Cambridge. They were a sensation within the clubs of London, but they wanted to go bigger. They already had two songs in the charts, Arnold Lane at number 20, and CMD Play at number 6. EMI knew they would be onto another winner. EMI beginning to understand that youth culture involves marketing or selling something which is a little bit outside of their own approval area. So your upper middle class corporate people are actually having to sell or get involved in, in psychedelia. Here came this group, the Pink Floyds. Uh, they talked to the manager. Oh, nice chap, public school. Yes, he'll be all right, you know. Um, what are they doing? Psychedelia, what's that? They take drugs and that. Really, they're taking and EMI persuaded themselves this was an act, this was a theatre, this was a play on the stage, that the group didn't actually do it, this was just something they performed, that they were selling, and that way they could finance it and help it and promote it without feeling that they were uh, approving of it. They all thought in terms of theatricality rather than reality. Beyond the horizon of the place we lived when we were young. EMI swiftly got in touch with Pink Floyd's manager Steve O'Rourke and organised the initial contract between Pink Floyd and EMI. As with the Beatles and other EMI talent, the band were expected to work and record with the producer who signed them, and his name was Norman Smith. Not only was he the producer for Pink Floyd, but he was also the recording engineer for the Beatles. Roger Barrett and Norman Smith both worked together on perfecting Barrett's last ever hit for Pink Floyd, Jug Band Blues. So at the end of this title, I did say to Sid, well, you know, Sid, I really fancy some extra orchestration going going on this on, on this title so he said oh yeah well so i said um oh i hear a bit of like a brass band so he said uh, oh yeah he said yeah 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 he said uh, a salvation army band 
So I said, OK, fine. I'll see if I can get a Salvation Army band. Pink Floyd were the fresh new talent, and EMI would do anything to get their recording sessions complete. If the band wanted choirs, extra instruments, orchestras, EMI would make sure they had it. Norman Smith gave them their first ever professional recording experience at the legendary Abbey Road Studios in London. Nick Mason of Pink Floyd shares his experience of what it was like recording at Abbey Road Studios. Beatles were actually working on Sgt Pepper down the hall, and that was, that was a big deal. A very big deal, and we were invited in to see them. It's a bit like being asked to go and meet God or gods. The wealth of income from the Beatles had a positive influence on Pink Floyd. It was because of the Beatles having all the time they wanted to record their Sgt Pepper album that EMI took this as a model. Instead of having three recording sessions to make a single, EMI gave Pink Floyd all the time they wanted to record in the studios. This new artistic freedom suited the band as it meant they could experiment with new sounds. And after successful negotiations, EMI granted Pink Floyd to have unlimited recording time in the studios. Pink Floyd really blew up when they released their 1973 album, Dark Side of the Moon. It was in this album that their new style of music was first heard. The music on this album kept with the band's psychedelic root, as some of the themes on the album included alienation, paranoia and schizophrenia. The album stayed with the charts for 741 weeks, which is still a record today. The band were perceived as psychedelics at the time by the press, but no one was going to be stopping them becoming as big as the Beatles. AMI and Pink Floyd at the time weren't concerned with this. Pink Floyd were getting famous and they were making money from it. Pete Jenner, one of the managers of Pink Floyd, tells us more about the way the band were presented in the press. We got exposed in the news of the world for being a band that was simulating drug experience and nothing happened. There was not a peep anywhere else because I was still teaching at the LSE and I think, oh my God, that's going to be a bit difficult to explain. Not a word anywhere. <laughs> It was also on Dark Side of the Moon that the two biggest members, Roger Waters and David Gilmour, were in competition with each other. This rivalry between Waters and Gilmour meant that after the Wall album tour, keyboard player Rick Wright left the band. Roger Waters explains the rivalry. Dave and I, uh, when we were in the south of France, where we did most of the recording of the Wall, we had a quite serious disagreement about the recording of Comfortably Numb. We had made... Um, a rhythm track, so that would be like drums, bass, guitar, whatever. I loved it, and he thought it wasn't precise enough rhythmically, and recut the drum track and there's something else, and said, "There, that's better." And I listened to it, and I went, "No, it's not. I hate that." And he went, "Oh, it's so." So that was all the disagreement was. The band was starting to collapse. The members were recording and producing their own music and solo albums. Pink Floyd's career mainly spread from 1965 to 1995, and in that time it's estimated that they sold well over 68.5 million records in the USA alone. They made albums for a new generation of teenagers and brought new sensations to the music industry. I'm Andrew, and for more choice, search Youth Choice GA on social media.